Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, I'm your host, and it's been a really long time since I've had a solo episode on Strange New Worlds, so that's exactly what we're going to do today. Nobody else, no subspace communications, just me, you, and some really nerdy calculations. That's right, we're going to do some calculations today on Strange New Worlds. We're going to be playing around with numbers and equations, physical laws of nature. Now, I know that not everybody grew up liking math or physics. It scared a lot of people, and that's 100% okay. I like to view math as a language. It's a language that's written in sentences called equations. And... Just like there are other languages out there, Spanish, Chinese, Hindi, Hebrew, etc., etc., you don't need to know the language of math to get through your life, but it is a very useful language for describing the nature of reality, for describing how life works, how planets work, and how the universe evolves as well. So when we encounter physical equations in today's podcast, just think of them as sentences. And it's my job as your host, as a science communicator, to translate those sentences from the language of mathematics into a language that everybody can understand. And you can let me know if I do a good job or not. You can always tweet at me at MikeYMIQUAI. And tell me what you think about this podcast, because it is probably going to be one of the more mathy podcasts on Strange New Worlds. But I hope nobody is intimidated by that, and that you're all excited for the ride that we're about to embark on. Okay, so let's localize ourselves in time. I am recording this podcast just a few days after the release of episode 213 of Star Trek Discovery, the 13th of 14 episodes that will comprise the second season of Discovery, this episode was called Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1. It's technically the first half of the season two finale, which I don't know why it has to be that instead of just the 13th of 14 episodes. To me, every single episode of Star Trek Discovery feels like one of those high-stakes season finales from TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, or Enterprise. It's just been this amazing roller coaster ride of twists, turns, and emotions. So whether or not you think of this as the first half of the season finale or the second-to-last episode of the season, it's really up to you. Either way, it feels the same to me. Okay, in this episode, we get to travel to planet Zahia, which was first mentioned in one of the short tracks that came out between season one and season two. That short track episode was called Runaway, and it featured Ensign Tilly meeting a brilliant young woman called Poe, who was soon to become queen of her planet Zahia. And so in the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, we actually go to Poe's home planet, and Poe appears, which is really brilliant. I mean, I didn't think that we would see Poe again. I sort of hoped that they would mention the events of Runaway somewhere within the second season, maybe an offhanded comment by Tilly about how she gained confidence through some interaction that she had with an alien creature that nobody else knew existed. 
I did not predict going to Zahia, but I was overjoyed when it actually happened. It was really well done, and I just love seeing Poe and Tilly interact because they are such big nerds. I love it. I mean, looking down at my notes right now and the scribbles that I have on my pad about planets and stars, I just wish I had Poe's superpower of being able to write equations into thin air and do nuclear physics in her head. I mean, what a brilliant person. Mm -hmm. So you have a time crystal, which I've only ever read about, and no method by which to activate it. And you have a time suit. So you want to use the suit to travel through time with this ship flying behind you, yes? Yes. And then you want to cut the ship loose and come back alone. What's happening? It's nuclear particle physics. Pretty sure she's calculating the reaction rate between particles equals mc squared, so. I like you. I like you too. I can modify my dilithium incubator to trigger an ongoing cascade of energy within the crystal by combining it with dark energy. It'll replicate the power of a supernova. And charge your crystal. I get to make a supernova. Today rocks! Okay, so this calculation that we're about to do isn't going to be about a supernova. But it is going to be about Poe's home planet, Zahia, and what that planet is really like, and what kind of star system it is located in. TrekCore on Twitter posted a screen cap of planet Zahia's characteristics, which was thrown up onto the main view screen overlaying a view of planet Zahia, and Michael Burnham is in this scene, she's talking about the mission, and behind her, if you pause the episode, you can see planet Zahia's physical characteristics. And so let's go through what we see on the screen. So there's Zahia in big words, followed by Class M Planet, Catalog number 0152894300. And already there's some really interesting information about Zahia. It's a class M planet, which is Starfleet's designation for a planet that is habitable for humanoid life. So it's a very Earth-like planet, a planet that you could just beam down to and start breathing its oxygen-rich atmosphere. You wouldn't have too much trouble walking because the gravity is about the same, and there's plenty of liquid water to satisfy our biochemical needs. Now, the catalog number suggests that there are over 15 million cataloged planets in the 23rd century. Compare this to the number of known exoplanets today, which is roughly 4,000. So 15 million might seem like quite a bit, but actually, it's not that much. So because we've only scanned a small portion of the sky for exoplanets, and because planets are extremely hard to find from Earth without having fancy warp drives or spore drives to jump around the cosmos— We've really only sampled a tiny fraction of the possible planetary systems, and we've already found 4,000. And the statistics suggest that there may be as many or maybe even more planets in the galaxy as there are stars. In other words, there could be hundreds of billions of planets in the Milky Way. 
So 15 million catalogs planets is not that much in comparison to that. And it just means that there are so many more wonderful Star Trek stories to tell and strange new worlds to explore. So let's keep going down this list. We've got a series of galactic coordinates. I will not read all of these numbers out because I have no idea how in the Star Trek universe they map the galaxy and split up its different sectors. So honestly, that doesn't really mean much to me. The next data entry is Zahia's diameter in kilometers. It's 13,097 kilometers in diameter, and that's actually remarkably similar to Earth. Earth has a diameter of about 12,700 kilometers, so this is slightly larger than Earth. And so, yeah, that's consistent with Zahia being a Class M planet. Let's keep going down. The next entry is gravity. Now, there is a little typo here. I have to point this out. The gravity is quoted in units of kilograms per meters cubed. And unfortunately, that's not the unit of gravity. That's the unit of density, a unit of mass kilograms per volume meters cubed. The number, though, is pretty intriguing. The number is 9.9, .9, which is very similar to Earth's gravitational acceleration, 9.81 meters per second squared. Right, so gravity is usually quoted as an acceleration, because if you held a ball out and dropped it, it would start falling and would move faster and faster and faster as it fell so long as nothing was impeding its falling. And that's because of the force of gravity accelerating that object down towards the center of mass of the planet. And so Earth has a value of 9.81 meters per second squared, 9.9 I'm guessing it was supposed to be meters per second squared, uh, is very similar to Earth's gravity, just a little bit higher. You probably wouldn't notice it that much. But again, kilograms per meters cubed, ah, I don't know, maybe Control sort of hacked the computer and made this typo. We'll just chalk it up to that. Okay, let's go down the list. The next entry is the rotation period and the length of day. This clocks in at 24.9 hours. So that means Zahia rotates on its axis once every 24.9 hours, which is very similar again to Earth, which does that on 24-hour periods. So very similar to Earth, a decently fast rotating planet, and this will play into our calculations in a minor role in just a sec. Now we're getting into the good stuff. We have the distance that Zahia is from its host star. This is 201.5 million kilometers. That's a really long distance that probably is really hard to intuit. So let me tell you how that compares to the distance between Earth and our sun. That distance between Earth and the sun is generally called one astronomical unit. So if you convert 201.5 million kilometers into astronomical units, you get 1.347 AU. That means Zahia orbits its star at a distance about 35% greater than the distance between Earth and the Sun. That's not a lot in the grand scheme of things. Mars orbits the Sun at a distance of about 1.5 AU, 1.5 AU. So... Zahia orbits its star closer to its star than Mars orbits the Sun. 
And the next planet out from Mars is Jupiter, which is roughly 5 AU from the Sun. So that is much, much farther than Zahia is from its star. So it's nowhere near the outer parts of the solar system where our gas giants lie. So, yeah, this is pretty consistent with Zahia perhaps receiving enough sunlight to make it a nice, warm Class M planet. Next, we have the orbital period of Zahia. The orbital period of a planet is basically how long that planet's year is. And it says that Zahia has a 400-day-long year. Compare this to Earth, 365 days. Again, not very different. Next, we have the mean temperature of Zahia, which is 14.9 degrees Celsius. Now, scientists like to generally think in terms of Kelvin. So this would equal about 288 Kelvin. It's not that bad of a temperature, actually. It's pretty nice. And finally, we have the number of moons Zahia has four natural satellites, and that is going to be completely useless information for the purposes of our calculation, so I won't say anything more about the moons. That's all the information that we have about Zahia, and I'm going to now highlight the pieces of information that we will need and use in our calculations. The first is we're going to use the distance that Zahia is from its host star and its orbital period to say something about the type of star that Zahia orbits. Then we'll use the length of day of Zahia in a calculation to understand how hot Zahia should be given no atmosphere. And then we'll try to justify why Zahia can maintain such nice habitable temperatures by saying that it must have a lot of clouds. And indeed, Zahia was covered in all sorts of crazy-looking clouds in the episode. Okay, so let's begin with our calculations. The first question that I wanted to ask, given this planetary data, is what is Zahia's host star like? Because that's extremely important for a habitable planet. Most of the energy that is used in life here on Earth comes from our sun. And the temperature of the surface of Earth is set by how sunlight warms our planet and how radiation interacts with our atmosphere. So let's try to figure out what kind of star Zahia orbits. Now, we can actually do this even though we are given no information about the star in this data file, simply by knowing the distance Zahia orbits its star and the period of one year of Zahia's orbit. And this is all thanks to a law that a man named Kepler discovered. Kepler was a scientist in the 16th and 17th centuries. He spent a lot of time thinking about the night sky and the motion of the planets and came up with a bunch of physical laws that describe the motion of planets. His third law is potentially his most famous law. It relates the distance that a planet orbits its star to the time it takes for a planet to complete a single orbit. So specifically, what the third law says is that the distance cubed is proportional to the period squared. So basically what that means is that if you know the distance at which one planet orbits its star and the period it takes that planet to 
complete one orbit. If you measure the distance between another planet and the same star, you can very easily calculate the time it will take that other planet to complete one circuit around the star. So Kepler was doing this for planets within our own solar system, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and he noticed that the distance cubed was always proportional to the period squared. Now that's just for our sun, okay? And it turns out that if you have a different star of a different mass, the same law will hold that the distance cubed will always be proportional to the period squared, but the constant of proportionality will be different, and it will be based upon the mass of that other star. Okay, so we're going to use Kepler's third law, knowing both the distance and the period of Zahia to derive the mass of Zahia's star. And we can do this by taking the ratio of the distance of Zahia's orbit to the distance that Earth orbits the Sun and cubing that quantity and then dividing by the square of the ratio of the period of Zahia's orbit to the period of Earth's orbit. And that quantity will tell us the ratio of the mass of Zahia's host star to the mass of the Sun. And what we get when we plug in the numbers is that Zahia's host star is about twice as massive as the Sun. So even though Zahia is a very Earth-like planet in terms of its size, its gravity, and its temperature, Zahia's star is very different from our Sun. It's twice the mass. And there's another scaling relationship in astronomy that will tell you the luminosity of a star based on that star's mass. And it goes like this. The luminosity of a star will go as the mass of that star to the power 4. And that means that if we take the mass of Zahia's star and divide that by the mass of the Sun, take that ratio, and then we raise that ratio to the power 4, we will get the luminosity of Zahia's star with respect to the luminosity of the Sun. And so, because Zahia is twice the mass of our Sun, the ratio of the masses is 2, 2 to the power 4 is 16, which means that Zahia's host star outputs 16 times as much energy per second than our Sun. So it's pouring out a lot more energy to a planet that is roughly the same distance as Earth is away from the star, and roughly the same size and characteristics as Earth. So a little bit more about Zahia's star. A star that is twice as massive as our Sun, with a luminosity about 16 times as bright, is called an A star. Okay? And you can go all the way back and revisit episode 3 of Strange New Worlds, where astronomer, now-turned-science communicator Erica Carlson tells us about all the different types of stars and what an A star means. But basically, an A star is a larger, brighter, whitish-blue type star. Okay, And A stars, it turns out, don't last nearly as long as stars like our sun. 
So the more mass of the star, the shorter the stellar lifetime. That means that we can safely assume that Zahia's star, and thus Zahia the planet, are both no more than a few hundred million years old. Now, if life on Zahia evolves on the same timescale as it did here on Earth, then it's highly unlikely that complex, intelligent forms of life emerged on Zahia in that timescale. Which to me suggests that Poe's people are actually travelers and settled Zahia while it was still a very young, hot planet. This might explain why Poe feels such an intense connection to her planet and even claims that her people were born with her planet. Maybe what she means by that is some kind of mythology explaining the settling of Zahia rather than the evolution of her species itself. Anyway, young planets tend to be very hot, so that could explain the lava motif that surrounds Poe and her people. Now, despite young planets tending to be very geologically and volcanically active, what really sets the surface temperature of a planet after it's initially formed is the incident light or radiation that comes to it from its host star. And it turns out that we can calculate what the temperature of Zahia should be and compare that to the actual temperature of Zahia given in the data file. Now, the way you calculate the temperature of a planet is by equating the rate of energy that is incident on the planet with the rate of energy that is emitted by the planet. So in other words, that's comparing the power in and the power out. The power in being the power that the star emits and that the planet absorbs, and the power out being the thermal radiation that the planet emits, or the radiation that it sends off into space because it is warm. And so, essentially what you do is you calculate the flux of light at the distance of the planet from the star. And since we know the distance that Zahia orbits its star, and we know the luminosity of its star, that's not very hard to do. The next thing we do is we try to find a mathematical expression for how much heat Zahia radiates. And this is going to be a function of the temperature of Zahia. In fact, it's going to be a function of the temperature to the fourth power. Also, we need to decide how much area is radiating this temperature from Zahia. And this is where the fact that Zahia rotates once per 24.9 hours comes into play. You see, if Zahia were not rotating very fast at all, then its day side would be very hot and its night side would be very, very cold. And so effectively, it would only radiate heat from its day side. But because we know that Zahia rotates roughly once every Earth day, that's a pretty quick rotation. And the temperature on both the day side and the night side of the planet will be roughly the same. Now, we all know that the temperature decreases at night, but it doesn't actually decrease by a huge margin. It's still very, very habitable at night, 
You can go outside for a walk. Depending on where you are, you might need an extra layer of clothing, but it's not like you'd freeze to death at night. So Zahia also rotating that quickly means that the night side becomes day, and then it becomes night, and then it becomes day again. And when it's day, it can warm up. And when it's night, it doesn't spend too long in night to cool off before it becomes day again. So effectively, Zahia radiates from the entire surface area of its sphere. Okay? And so that allows us to calculate the temperature of Zahia, balancing the heat that's coming in from the star and the heat that Zahia radiates to space in all directions. And when you calculate this temperature, you get a value of 434 Kelvin. 434 Kelvin. Yikes. That is really, really hot. Let's compare that to the temperature that Zahia is supposed to be at in the data file. Only 288 Kelvin. So we're way past boiling here at 434 Kelvin, because water will boil, at 373 Kelvin, which would make Zahia an absolute hellscape. So how is it possible that a planet can maintain low temperatures, given that its star is outputting 16 times as much energy as our sun, and should make the planet a veritable hell? Well, it turns out that there are other terms in this temperature equation. One of the most important terms is the reflectivity of the planet, okay? And so for that temperature of 434 Kelvin, I assumed the same reflectivity as Earth. And that seemed reasonable to do because Zahia was said to be an M-class planet or an Earth-like planet. But it's possible that Zahia's reflectivity could be much, much higher than that of Earth. And one of the best ways to reflect light back out into space is by having lots and lots of cloud cover. So I can take my temperature equation, and I can actually rearrange the terms in it to solve for the reflectivity needed to lower Zahia's temperature down to that nice, wonderful 288 Kelvin. And when I do that, I come up with a reflectivity of about 85%. For reference, Earth's reflectivity is around 30%. So 85% seems like a lot. You would need a lot of cloud cover for that. But it's not completely unreasonable. We can compare this 85% reflectivity to that of Venus, which has a 76% reflectivity. So let's recap what we've done today. We have taken the planetary characteristics of Zahia, its orbital distance from its star, the period in which it completes a single orbit around its star, the rotation period of Zahia, and its average global temperature, and understood the system that Zahia is in a little bit better. We used the distance that Zahia orbits a star and the period of Zahia's orbit to learn about Zahia's star. Even though we weren't told a single bit of information about the star, we could use those numbers to solve for the mass of the star, and thus the star's luminosity. 
and we found out that Zahia's star is very different from our own sun. It's twice as massive and 16 times as luminous, which would make Zahia extraordinarily hot, certainly too hot for Poe to survive, unless Zahia was covered with lots and lots of clouds that could reflect a bunch of light back into space, specifically 85% of the light that would have hit Zahia gets reflected to space by the clouds. And indeed, Star Trek Discovery depicts Zahia full of clouds. The image is a little bit concerning for a planetary scientist because the clouds seem to swirl around Zahia in a great disk. I can't explain why the clouds look like that, how they formed, or why they extend so far beyond planet Zahia. But nonetheless, these clouds probably scatter or reflect a lot of the incoming sunlight. And if they can reflect 85% of that sunlight from ever hitting Zahia, then Zahia would be a habitable world indeed. So that's a deep dive into the planetary science of Star Trek Discovery. I hope you enjoyed this episode. What I've done for you today is basically outlined what is a very classic qualification exam problem in the planetary science community. Solving for the temperature of a planet, knowing its orbital characteristics and the type of star that it orbits, is something that is routinely asked of graduate students during their exams. So I hope you've gotten a little taste of what it's actually like to solve a planetary science question. But what I really hope is that you have been emboldened today, that given such limited amounts of information about a planet, we can actually use the foundations of our knowledge of the way that the universe works to ask and answer important questions about that planet's system and how it works. Everybody, I hope you enjoy Star Trek Discovery's Season 2 finale. I know it's going to be a blast, and I can't wait to be back on this show to share the wonders of the universe and of Star Trek with you. Live long and prosper.